from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 9th. Today, why the president remains unconcerned about coronavirus, negotiating with the Taliban and a tale of self-quarantine during the plague. This weekend, we confirmed that there was a coronavirus patient, someone who had coronavirus, who attended CPAC, which is a conservative conference that is attended by all of the top Republicans in the country, including President Trump, Vice President Pence, several members of the Trump administration. And this person had interactions with the organizer of the conference, Matt Schlapp, who interacted with a lot of the top officials who attended the conference, including shaking hands with President Trump. That seems really bad. It's potentially bad. I'm Tolu Olorunipa. I cover the White House and national politics for The Post. The fact that President Trump is now only two degrees away from coronavirus in terms of having physical contact with someone who was in contact with a patient, uh, it shows that this is right at the doorstep of of the White House now. The White House says that President Trump feels fine. He did not have any direct contact with this man. But there are a lot of questions about how close this got to people who are around the president and what kinds of risk this virus could pose to the president. Remember, he is a senior citizen. He's in his 70s. He's one of the people who would be at risk if he was in contact with anyone who had this virus. And uh, that's part of the reason that people are asking a lot of questions about what this will mean for the president's next several months in office, whether he will have to change the way he campaigns, the way he conducts himself, in part because we've seen this one potential close call of the president getting close to uh, the coronavirus. And now that we know that this is out there in the community, it's likely that he will be shaking hands and interacting with people who may have interacted with the patient. Considering that, This is serious enough that Senator Ted Cruz decided to self-quarantine. Is the White House actually planning to change anything, especially in regards with President Trump himself and who he will be interacting with and, and where he'll be going? That's an interesting question because there's a lot of tension in the White House right now between the president who wants to behave like everything is normal. He wants to keep holding rallies. Have you considered not having campaign rallies? Like, you don't want to schedule in Michigan this coming week. Well, I'll tell you what. I haven't had uh, any problem filling them. We just had one in North Carolina, South Carolina, all over the place. And we have tens of thousands of people standing outside the arena. So Is it a risk if there's that many people all close together? It doesn't bother me at all, and it doesn't bother them. He doesn't want to cause more panic because he's looking at his reelection. But there are people within the White House, professionals and just administration officials who think they need to prepare for major changes to the president's daily schedule, taking him off the campaign trail. There are currently no rallies scheduled for the president as of Monday morning. That's the first time this year that he hasn't had any rallies on the book. So there is a sense that this is starting to change his daily behavior. But the president has been very reluctant to acknowledge this crisis as something that needs to be a major shift in terms of how he conducts his daily behavior. He's trying to calm the markets and make people think that everything is fine. And I'm also curious, are Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders changing the way that they're doing campaigning for the next couple of months? Are they canceling rallies or trying to protect the public? 
So far, they have not, but they both said that they will listen to public health experts. And if they are told that rallies are a bad idea or that they shouldn't have these large gatherings, that they would be willing to make those changes. But so far, they haven't, even over the weekend. Both had major events. Joe Biden was in St. Louis. Bernie Sanders was in Chicago. Massive crowds, lots of people gathered outdoors. And they said that they were going to continue with those types of events unless they hear differently. Um, But they have said that, you know, given the fact that they're both older, they're in their 70s, that they would listen to public health experts, that they had brought in some public health experts to advise their campaigns, and that we could see some changes going forward. And the fact that President Trump is reluctant to change his daily behavior and change the way that he plans to be doing campaigning for the next couple months, that also feels like a symptom of a larger issue of his attitude toward coronavirus in general and and how the crisis is being managed on a national level. Yes, he's called this the corona flu. This is a flu. This is like a flu. He said it's going to miraculously disappear when it gets warm. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat as the heat comes in. Uh, Typically, that will go away in April. We're in great shape, though. He said that, you know, we have shut it down and it's contained. He's really tried to tamp down this idea that this is a virus that's spreading across the country, causing more cases and more deaths. And it's worth noting that he's also been suggesting essentially that Democrats have been sort of fanning the flames of this and that it's not as serious as, as quote-unquote, Democrats are making it out to be. Yes, he has been pushing that message. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. They're politicizing it. And this is their new hoax. And actually, a lot of people who attended CPAC also pushed that message. So it's been interesting to see that fear over this virus now sort of reach the shores of the people who were sort of denouncing it as a hoax or saying that it was not as serious as people were making it out to seem earlier. Now it seems that the president and the people who are close to him have to acknowledge that this is a real threat to the country. This is a real crisis. This is something that they will have to focus on and and people will have to change their behaviors over and there's an economic impact. And I think the president is starting to realize that even though he's reluctant to give into it or reluctant to acknowledge it publicly, and he still continues to say that everything is fine. And there have been some internal criticisms about that response. What are some of the incidents that people have pointed to as demonstrative of this dismissive attitude towards a very serious public health crisis. So there's been a lot of miscommunications within the administration about sort of who's in charge, what the messaging is going to be. You had several people go to Capitol Hill and give hearings, including Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who uh, basically told the Congress that we had all of these tests and that the testing was going according to plan and that there were millions of tests that were going to be given out. And our testing in the United States has been very, has been very consistent, if not even more aggressive than similarly impacted countries. Uh, We have been ramping up our testing and actually where we will stand in the next week to week and a half in terms of availability of testing will place us far ahead, far, far ahead of similarly impacted major countries around the world. So um, we've actually been progressing with this on par with all of our peer countries. And at the time, that just happened to not be the case, that there were problems with the tests at the time, and it took quite a while for the tests to be rolled out. And they're just now starting to get rolled out throughout the country. And then you had a press conference at the White House where this new 
coronavirus task force was put together and they held a press conference but did not allow audio, did not allow video, and the American public who weren't in the room were not able to get the flavor of what was happening live. Now they changed that and now they've had these daily briefings on camera, but it's still unclear sort of who's in charge. President Trump attended one of these briefings and he appointed Mike Pence, the vice president, to be in charge of this coronavirus task force. And Mike will be working with the professionals and doctors and everybody else that's working. We're doing really well and Mike is going to be in charge, and Mike will report back to me, but he's got a certain talent for this. And, While uh, Alex Azar, the HHS secretary, who had been the chairman of the task force, was also there, and it was unclear sort of who was the leader, and Alex Azar stepped up to the mic towards the end and said, I'm still on the task force, I'm still the chairman, and President Trump just walked out of the room while he was saying that. And it's really been unclear about who's in charge, why there's so much miscommunication within the White House, and why infighting which has been a major part of the Trump administration, is still at play at a time of a public health emergency. And I I would imagine that this is concerning for people inside the administration for two reasons. Obviously, there is the reason of protecting the American public and trying to stop this from spreading further and spreading more quickly. But also there are the political ramifications for President Trump. Obviously, this these are the final months leading up to a potential re-election. And the fact that Many people see this as being a completely bungled situation could be really bad for him and a defining part of his presidency. Yeah, the president campaigned saying he was a businessman, he was going to bring efficiency to the government, and that he was going to help the economy. And this coronavirus crisis has really posed questions about his leadership skills, his ability to manage a crisis, to manage the government, and to also manage the economy. The economy has taken a hit from these various cases that have been coming forward, people canceling flights, canceling vacations, shutting down parts of the country. The president has gotten low marks in public polling because people do not see him as being at the wheel, at the helm of this, as putting out positive and, you know, useful and reliable information. Instead, he's been focused on sort of putting out political spin. He's gone to play golf over the weekend. And and there are a lot of questions about whether or not this is going to impact his reelection bid. And he is very focused on his reelection bid. And that's part of the reason he's been putting out information to say, oh, don't worry about this. This is not a big crisis. Trying to calm the financial markets and say that people should, you know, not sell off their stocks and not, you know, panic. He's definitely focusing on the potential impact on his reelection, and that is potentially making it harder for the government to actually provide the best public health response to this crisis. Yeah, that seems like the big irony here, that he's taking a lot of actions that are basically trying to protect his reelection campaign and pretend that things aren't actually that bad. But in doing that, he is in many ways hurting his chances of getting reelected. Yeah, we have talked to people within the administration who say that the president genuinely believes that things aren't that bad, that people are overreacting, that this market sell-off is a major overreaction to the situation at hand. But there is a, a major crisis that his public health officials have tried to warn the country about. And the fact that the government has provided disjointed information and miscommunication has made it harder for people to have confidence. And that's part of the reason that we're seeing the financial markets panic, because people are not sure what to believe. They're hearing one thing from the president, hearing a different thing from his administration. There's a sense that there's chaos within the White House and the people who are supposed to be governing and and protecting the country are not on the same page. So the president is, you know, by trying to protect his reelection and trying to put a positive spin on what's going on, he is actually potentially making his reelection bid 
all the more uh, difficult for people to to support. Tolu Olurunipa covers the White House for The Post. So what we saw in Kabul today was actually quite surreal. We saw two dueling presidential inaugurations. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani. And his rival, Abdullah Abdullah. Both held presidential inauguration ceremonies at almost exactly the same time, just a few yards apart from each other in these two different compounds in downtown Kabul. And this came despite weeks of efforts to mediate between the two men to find some sort of a compromise that could avoid the spectacle that played out today. But in the end, a compromise was not reached. No one budged, and both men declared themselves president of the country. I am Susanna George, and I am the Afghanistan and Pakistan bureau chief for The Washington Post. But now, added on to all of that, we have these peace talks with the Taliban. And the U.S. deal that was signed with the Taliban in Doha last week, it specifically stated that talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban needed to begin on Tuesday. That's March 10th. In an ideal world, the Afghan government would enter into these talks strongly united with a team of people who were inclusive and who could legitimately claim to represent Afghans who do not align themselves with the Taliban. But instead, we have a deeply divided government. So the chances of having a group of people who can stand up to the Taliban and say, listen, you need to take us and our demands seriously because we have a mandate, you know, that is severely diminished. If you don't have a strong team that's backed by a unified government, these ideals of women's rights, civil liberties, democracy, freedom of speech, it's just a lot less likely that they're going to be upheld in a post-peace Afghanistan. Afghanistan is really entering this potential milestone moment where there's a new peace deal that's been negotiated between the United States and the Taliban, and now there's supposed to be peace talks for the first time in more than 18 years of war between the Afghan parties. Missy Ryan is a national security reporter for The Post. She's been covering the peace deal that was struck between the U.S. and the Taliban last month, after more than a year of negotiations. And she says that, at least for a little while, it had looked like the U.S. had achieved a real success. But things have quickly become a lot more complicated. There's a lot going on at this moment, and it seems like there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a huge challenge and reasons for being cautious about what can be achieved. So let's first go back to this peace deal that was struck between the U.S. and the Taliban that did not involve the Afghan government. What was decided on during those peace deals? So this was an agreement that the U.S. negotiators, Almay Khalilzad, negotiated with the Taliban, and it was a huge deal for the U.S. government. It was the first direct agreement that the United States had struck with the Taliban. The United States, if you recall, entered Afghanistan in 2001 militarily after the 9-11 attacks, and there's been this long, inconclusive, very costly 
conflict that's ensued where neither side has won. So the Trump administration decided that it wanted to reach a deal with the Taliban that would, number one, allow for the withdrawal of American forces, and number two, set the stage for the Taliban reaching some sort of political settlement with the Afghan government. And so that was the first part of this. The U.S. government signed a deal with the Taliban to remove American forces over 14 months in exchange for a series of promises from the Taliban, including the promise to sit down and begin actual substantive peace talks with the Afghan government. So if in this peace deal, the U.S. basically promised that they'll be withdrawing from Afghanistan imminently, what did they get in return from the Taliban and how has that panned out so far? So the what the United States gets in return for offering this withdrawal of American forces is a promise from the Taliban to break with al-Qaeda and to sit down with the Afghan government side and begin peace negotiations. And what it doesn't do is set up a national ceasefire, any sort of lasting ceasefire. The hope is that from the U.S. government side, the hope is that there will be some reduction in violence. There was a seven-day reduction in violence period, not really a ceasefire that preceded the signing of this deal. So now, really, this is one element of the uncertainty that everyone is entering in after the signing of the deal. There was a signing ceremony in Doha on February 29th. Today, we have taken a decisive step toward peace, real peace in Afghanistan. And a lot of talk about this unprecedented opportunity for Afghans. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was there, as were the senior Taliban negotiators. And it was this very strange moment in some ways to see the senior cabinet official from the United States sitting down with the members of a militant group that the United States has um, been fighting for 20 years. We've achieved great things. We've ensured Afghanistan isn't a haven for terrorists who can attack us. And we have bettered the lives of Afghan people. But now we're entering this period of uncertainty where not only are you seeing the limits of this deal because it doesn't spell out a ceasefire, it doesn't really seem to have full agreement from the Taliban and the Afghan government side about what was actually agreed to. And then you have this big political crisis in Kabul, which further compounds the complexity associated with moving forward. So if this is the stage where the Taliban is supposed to be sitting down with the Afghan government, what is the Afghan government trying to get out of this and what is what is the Taliban seeking to do? Well, the Afghan government acknowledges that there has to be some role for the Taliban politically in Afghanistan. Afghan government security forces have not been able to defeat the Taliban, um, but they don't want that to be the Taliban imposing, again, this kind of hardline, very repressive rule taking over again, as they did in the 1990s. And the fear is that this, from the the fear from the critics of the deal, including many within the Afghan government, is that this deal actually is much too favorable to the Taliban. And the Taliban themselves, you know, they want to be allowed to take part in the political process. They want international legitimacy. They're smaller things like they want to be taken off UN sanctions list. They want to travel freely. There is an expectation that this next stage, this peace talks phase, would allow them to you know, have a more open role in the public life in Afghanistan. But the question is, you know, will they do that as one actor in a multi-party society, in a multi-party political system? Or are they going to try to make it be the 1990s again, where they're the only actor in town, essentially? And I can imagine that if the Afghan government is at this point where there are 
two different presidents who are both claiming to be in charge at the same time, that makes it more complicated for them to present a strong force at the negotiating table with the Taliban. Absolutely. I mean, the political talks are supposed to start tomorrow, and there has not been um, any announcement on where they're going to occur. There hasn't been an announcement on who the mediator is going to be. Um, it's, it is a virtual impossibility that that will happen, but just as an illustration of why it's so important to have a clear identification of who is the party that the Taliban will si be sitting across from um, uh, representing the Afghan government, it's a, it's a a huge complicating factor. And, uh, you know, it would be one of the reasons that there would be a delay um, or, or postponing of the political talks if they are ever to actually begin. And it seems like the U.S.'s deal with the Taliban was already pretty fragile. So I would imagine that if this part of it, these negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban fall apart, that could have effects on the the, the deal as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it definitely raises questions about whether or not the United States will follow through with its end of the of the bargain and the major the major leverage that the United States had in making that deal and that it will retain is the troop presence. So they have the ability to halt the troop exit if the Taliban doesn't follow through with its side of the deal. So, you know, the, the Pentagon could say, OK, Taliban, you haven't sat down with the Afghan government or you've conducted too many attacks or or you haven't actually broken with al-Qaeda. We're actually not going to take out troops in 14 months. They could say that. But there's a lot of speculation that the Trump administration might actually choose to go forward with the troop reduction anyway or the troop withdrawal. For reasons mostly linked to President Trump's desire to withdraw from Afghanistan, and that's something that really was hanging over this whole process. And so the critics will say this agreement is actually sort of a fig leaf for his desire to leave under any terms. And so the United States military might end up having to leave or withdraw troops, even if the political process doesn't come together between the Afghans as hoped. Missy Ryan covers national security. Susanna George covers Afghanistan for The Post. Now, one more thing from the 17th century. In September 1665, George Vickers, who's a tailor's assistant in Eme, a small village in the Peak District in northern England, he opens a bundle of blankets that's been sent up from London and is immediately infected with bubonic plague. Bubonic plague had recently broken out in London, and this was the latest iteration of a huge pestilence that tore through Europe and the Middle East through the previous few centuries. Within a week, Vickers has died, and within six weeks, 29 people in the small village of Eme, which is a population of about 800 people, had died. I'm Zach Purser-Brown. Normally I'm a political videos editor on The Post, but this week I'm moonlighting as the 17th century Britain correspondent. Because the disease was carried by rats and fleas, it slows a little bit through the winter and fewer people die. In fact, in the following May, they thought they'd ridded themselves of plague because they had no deaths whatsoever. 
However, what we think had happened was the disease was mutating and came back far stronger. By June 1666, the plague comes back with a vengeance and the death rate goes up again. The newly appointed rector of the village, the the village priest, this guy, William Montpesson, he realises the need to take some action and that plague is going to spread throughout the north of England. Eames sits on a trading route between Sheffield and Manchester and he realises that they need to contain the disease. But he has a problem because this is England in the wake of the English Civil War and the village residents are all loyal to Montpesson's predecessor, who's this guy, Thomas Stanley, who's a Puritan priest. Montpesson goes to see Stanley and persuades him of his plan to quarantine the village. The two of them get the villagers together and they make their pitch. They say, we're probably all going to die. They did this with eyes open. They knew it was almost certain death. But for the good of the surrounding areas, they established a cordon sanitaire around the edge of the village. The villagers all agreed not nobody would leave, nobody would come in, and nobody would go out. The boundary was established and marked by these boundary stones that townsfolk from surrounding areas would come, leave food for the villagers, who would leave payment of gold coins submerged in vinegar because they thought that would act as disinfectant. It must have been an absolutely ghastly sight inside the village for the 14 months that the cordon stayed in place. You know, we were talking about rat-infested, bodies piling up. In all, 260 of Eames' 800 residents died, so it's a huge mortality rate, far higher than the death rate in London. But it was a success because plague never spread outside of the village. None of the surrounding towns got infected, and they saved thousands because... Eam being on this trade route between Sheffield and Manchester, Montpesson knew that if the plague got into the surrounding cities, thousands would die. So it really was a kind of knowing self-sacrifice. As governments around the world impose quarantine on people, those in self-quarantine might look back with concern at the story of Eam and the absolute horror that the village had to endure through this period of self-isolation during the plague. But they should also remember that the quarantine, in fact, worked. Zach Purser-Brown is a video editor for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're seeking more coverage of the coronavirus outbreak, you should subscribe to a new coronavirus newsletter at The Post. There are breaking news updates about the public health response, as well as deep dives into the science and economics of the outbreak. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter or find a link at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 